Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Enhancing Outcomes for Patients with Resected Early Stage Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, a piercing evaluation of the clinical support for adjuvant immunotherapies. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck and Company Incorporated. So hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Chaft. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Luis Pazari. Thank you very much, Amy. I am Luis Pazares. I'm a medical oncologist here working at the 12th of October University Hospital in Spain. We know that improving overall survival of patients with lung cancer can be achieved with adjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy. The reality is that these drugs improve survival more in patients with higher stages of disease, but across stage one through three resected non-small cell lung cancer, a 5% survival advantage is what you'll often hear. Now, the rationale for adjuvant immunotherapy in lung cancer, I think, is quite obvious. We know that immunotherapy with anti-PD-1 or PDL one agents have been approved for the treatment of many different settings of lung cancer, from frontline metastatic disease to consolidation therapy after chemoimmunotherapy. It was logic to move these drugs forward after surgery and chemotherapy. The first to the market was atezolizumab, showing marked improvement in disease-free survival after surgery and adjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy. Pembrolizumab has been more recently FDA-approved in the United States. The authorization of this drug is still pending in Europe. Now, again, these drugs are approved in completely resected disease. For patients with positive surgical margins, the approach is different. And all of the indications still fall after cisplatin-based chemotherapy. So Dr. Pazeris, in Europe, are you and your colleagues adopting this in routine clinical practice? Yes, Jamie. I think most of the physicians do support the use of adjuvant immunotherapy after chemotherapy in this setting. As you mentioned, adjuvant chemotherapy is effective, but the impact on survival is quite minimal, so we have to do something else. Thank goodness, those two trials you mentioned really support the use of adjuvant immunotherapy in those patients with resected disease. Patients really, for most of the cases, agree on receiving that therapy, taking into account the potential benefit plus the associated risks. And today is very little, I would say, hesitancy to use it. The main issue today in Europe, at least, is availability. Do you think the EMA is waiting for overall survival data or are you and your colleagues comfortable with the DFS data we have? To be honest, at this stage, I'm pretty comfortable with DFS data. In that particular setting, DFS is translating pretty well, showing a clear tend to have an impact in survival. I agree. I think what we've seen in advanced disease, where most of the rationale for these drugs come from, is that our responders really are responders, even with more advanced stage 4 disease. Our next session, we'll discuss the efficacy data associated with approved and emerging adjuvant immunotherapies in non-small cell lung cancer. In this session, let's discuss the efficacy data associated with approved and emerging adjuvant immunotherapies in non-small cell lung cancer. 
We have data on two trials that uh, we'll discuss during this session. One of the trials is the PERLS trials, a randomized phase three trial of Pembroke versus placebo in resected stage two to three patients. The impact on DFS was pretty clear. However, the DFS in the high PDR1 population, those with tumors and PDR1 expression more than 50% of the cells, was not that obvious. This randomized phase three trial compared a tissue versus versus proportive care in completely resected stage two and three. Importantly, that was not a placebo control trial, but there was a clear improvement in DFS on those patients with tumors with PDR1 expression at least. 1% of the cells, pretty consistent with the overall data that we mentioned on the PERS trial. Importantly, in that case, there was a 10 to overall survival benefit with PDR1 expression in more than 1% of the cells. And in the subgroup of patients with PDR1 expression in more than 50%, the benefit was even higher. So taking all those data into consideration, Dr. Chaff, how do they impact your clinical practice today? Yeah, the first look at that pembrolizumab data, it was really eye-opening to see less than a dramatic benefit in the pdl one high subset. But we saw in that study that the control arm overperformed. Um, people did very well with or without pembrolizumab, and there still was a benefit. In my clinical practice, these drugs are absolutely standard of care for patients without contraindications to immunotherapy who have completed any planned chemotherapy and negative surgical margins. My practice has still been to prescribe atezolizumab in the population in which it showed the greatest advantage in their clinical study, and that's pdl one high resected H2 and 3 disease. Whereas we have the opportunity to use pembrolizumab in, in smaller tumors, irrespective of pdl one expression. I can't say that I'm yet completely enthusiastic about prescribing adjuvant pembrolizumab to patients whose tumors did not express pdl one at all, particularly those patients who weren't smokers. But we have that option in the clinic. And if other biomarkers don't uncover a different treatment option, it's at least worth a discussion. I fully agree, Jamie. There are a number of other trials with nivolumab, durva, tislalizumab, centilumab, canalizumab, with very similar design of the trial we mentioned. And I think those would be of help to really guide our clinical practice in the future. It's time for us to discuss some of the safety data concerning immunotherapy in the treatment of non-reversible cancer in the IVA setting. Next session. In this session, let's discuss the safety information pertaining to immunotherapies in lung cancer. Immune-related adverse events can affect almost anything in the body, all of the itises, and also inflammatory and autoimmune conditions that lead to complications of the blood or other systems. The reality is the need to be alert to these complications at any time during treatment and after treatment because these patients with resected lung cancer you may not see frequently after treatment. So you have to think about the endocrinopathies and other AEs that can happen later and testing for these adverse events. In the adjuvant setting, we didn't see anything surprising. Adverse events leading to discontinuation in both published studies of pembrolizumab and atezolizumab were comparable. Most are low grade and 10 to 15% require steroids, not much different than what we see in the treatment of advanced lung cancer. We do have data in more advanced cancers that the development of an immune-mediated adverse event may correlate with efficacy. What do you think about that, Luis? In your clinic, do you really try to get folks through that year of adjuvant immunotherapy when they develop an adverse event? 
I don't think the number of patients making this continuation is that different as compared to the later stage. The only thing is that here we plan a year of treatment for every patient. In the advanced setting, many patients do have disease progression earlier on. And that is the reason I think why maybe the absolute rate of discontinuation is a bit higher in the advanced setting. Wait, what about rechallenge? I know in stage four disease, when someone recovers from an adverse event, we will often rechallenge them for the sake of trying to keep yeah. their advanced cancer under control. But in this adjuvant setting, does your practice differ? I'm pretty much in favor of rechallenge. If I had a patient with a grade three hepatitis that is recovering in a week of treatment, I tend to rechallenge. If the patient is lasting some time to recover, or if it's a more severe side effect, or if the patient is having a myocarditis or things like that, I may not offer rechallenge to my patients. What I think is important here is that patients should be aware that we know pretty well the side effects that we are expecting. We know how to monitor them and how to intervene in case they happen. So it is important that our nurses, our team nurses, and ourselves do really educate our patients to be aware of any complication may happen. Right. Thanks for your insight. Our next session will delve into the factors to consider when choosing an adjuvant therapy for a patient with resected lung cancer. This section, let's discuss factors to consider when selecting an adjuvant therapy for non-small cell lung cancer. After resection, important factors are going to be related to specific variables at the time of insurance and the choice of immunotherapy. We have learned not only in this early disease setting, but also in the advanced setting that pdl one status is important. The robustness of the data in EFR mutant or ALK rearranged diseases are pretty low. Other biomarker data at this stage is not very important. However, I feel it's important to consider if the patient has received or not adjuvant chemotherapy. Of course, those patients that are not healthy enough to receive adjuvant treatment are not going to be considered for immunotherapy. Those patients with some relevant autoimmune diseases, I don't think maybe considers, particularly, let's say, patients with active severe arthritis or severe lupus or having had uh, organ transplantation and so on. Let's ask Dr. Chaff, what are the patient and disease-specific factors that are more important to you at the time of deciding or not to give adjuvant immunotherapy in this setting? For me, if the patient doesn't have an absolute contraindication, then I would offer it. Those absolute contraindications are solid organ transplantation or active or recent history of a substantial autoimmune disease such as ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. For patients with actionable oncogene driver mutations, I consider those contraindications we know in advanced disease that these patients don't benefit from immune checkpoint inhibitors. So someone with an EGFR, ALK, altered lung cancer would not be appropriate in my clinic for an adjuvant immunotherapy. Okay, so thank you very much. I think we may go to the next session where we will discuss integrated adjuvant immunotherapy into treatment plans for patients with non-small cell lung cancer. In our final session, let's discuss how to integrate adjuvant immunotherapies into the treatment plans of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Now, in the future, perhaps we'll have the answer of integrating immunotherapy with the chemo. The NCI-ACO study is looking to ask the question of concurrent chemo IO versus what is currently approved with sequential platinum chemo followed by immunotherapy. But we did see that subset in the PEARL study for patients who didn't receive chemotherapy at all 
And we know that in stage four disease, we don't prescribe chemotherapy to patients with high tumor PDL1 expression. Patients without chemotherapy, however, did not do as well in the PERLS population. And it's really a question of, is that biology or were the patients less fit who didn't receive chemotherapy? And I'll be interested when we're done to hear what Dr. Pazari thinks. The other real elephant in the room has been what to do with EGFR and ALK-altered tumors. So in the PEARL study, these patients were included. And I think despite it being an exceptionally small subset, the favorable hazard ratio was surprising for pembrolizumab. We know that prescribing an EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor after a checkpoint inhibitor can be potentially toxic. So should we be prescribing these patients immunotherapy? The data from the Empower 010 study was more in line with what we expected. Patients with EGFR and ALK-altered disease did not benefit from adjuvant atezolizumab. So I would ask Dr. Pazeri, in your clinic, how do you view these issues for patients without chemotherapy fitness? Today, all my patients are having a battery of biomarkers done on the initial biopsy, and if not, at least in the resected specimen. If I have a patient with an EGFR mutation, I tend to prescribe aginosimertinib after chemotherapy as compared to any type of immune checkpoint. I don't think the data with immune checkpoint inhibitors is really robust to indicate those treatments in this very setting. Concerning those patients that were not receiving chemotherapy, we have included some of those patients in the PELS trials. And unfortunately, the trial in those patients showed that they were not benefiting from adjuvant pembrolizumab. Those patients were not included on the atisolizumab trial. So we do not have clear data to really support the use of adjuvant immunotherapy on those patients. But it is not clear to me why those patients are not benefiting. I totally agree. Thanks for that input. So to conclude the program, it's pretty exciting that adjuvant immunotherapies have been recently approved for the treatment of patients with completely resected non-small cell lung cancer. These provide additional opportunities for patients, and we've seen amazing disease-free survival data that's likely to translate into overall survival data. We still have some unmet needs, however, should this immunotherapy be given concurrently with chemotherapy. And for our patients with biomarker positive disease, EGFR, ALK, ROTS1, or other rare oncogene-driven cancers, what should we do? Should we prescribe immunotherapy? We both felt no. However, we need more data in this setting. And finally, we need more data for patients who are not fit for chemotherapy. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.